Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and we have not only a fascinating show, but I think a really relatively, not relatively, um, relevant show, historically important show. Um, I think we're going to talk about some topics that are not really mainstream, but significant in history and a new book that has come out that is very unique and um, is, uh, I think, a historically relevant piece of work that people will look to 100 years from now when they're trying to understand the history of gay rights. And it tells a very important story of one faction of what was going on at the time and what was going on with progressive movements in the United States. Um, That book is called Communists in Closets, Queering the History 1930s to the 1990s. Um, It is written by uh, famed activist Bettina Apothecare. I'm sorry, Bettina, I think I just screwed up your last name. Um, Bettina is... Um, an author. This is her third book. Uh, she's also a distinguished professor emerita at um, University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, the book explores the history of the gay, lesbian, and non-heterosexual people in the Communist Party in the United States. What was surprising to me to find out, um, because I wouldn't have thought this to be the case, but the Communist Party, which you would think of as you know, the, the fighters of the working class and the what most people would consider on the very left of the left wing of the political spectrum, um, actually barred people, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people from membership beginning in 1938. And it called everybody who was LGBTQ degenerates. Uh, it kept that ban until 1991. And Bettina's book tells the story of those that were forced to live into this very segmented closet. Um, Bettina was a very high-profile activist in the 60s and 70s. Um, She came out as both a communist and then years later as um, being lesbian and She uh, ultimately completed her master's degree and taught African-American and women's studies at San Jose State University. And then uh, in the 80s, she completed her doctorate in the history of consciousness and uh, taught at the University of Santa Cruz, uh, or University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, So we're very excited to talk to her about about, uh, her book. Um, And I just want to read one portion of this. Um, the Communist Party seals papers of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who is a, a prominent communist activist. Um, Bettina writes, it seemed to me that the more radical the gay liberation movement became, the more so many in it sought unity 
with an inclusion in other liberation movements, the more adamant the party in its opposition. Similarly, the more evidence there was of participation in the gay liberation movement by women, people of color, and the working class, the more strident the party became in its homophobic policies and actions. So that is a flavor of what we are going to be talking about today. Uh, First, I need to bring on my co-host, the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Levesque. Hey, Rob, and good day, morning, afternoon to everybody. And Brody, what's what's going on in the world? Well, I mean, we're looking at a couple of things. Um, I need to address one thing that's been going on. Uh, that deals with the rapper uh, Kanye West, who's now known as Ye. Um, as you know, uh, there was considerable amount of controversy uh, stirred up by his anti-Semitism and the remarks that he was making. And in the aftermath and the fallout from that, uh, his management company walked away from him. His agent walked away from him. One of his record labels walked away from him. Um, And then on top of that, the deal he had with Adidas in Germany, which was extremely lucrative, they walked away from him. Um, And so that's been kind of the running thing. But it also brings into specific relief, especially in the Los Angeles area. We've had incidences of anti-Semitic displays and quite frankly, hate acts uh, over the last couple of weeks. And then, of course, a week ago on Sunday, they uh, held a banner up over the 405 freeway uh, that said Kanye was right and uh, some other really anti-Semitic nasty things. And this, of course, comes on the heels of the scandal at Los Angeles City Hall and the Los Angeles City Council, where we've had a council president resign not only her presidency on the, of the council, but her council seat. There have been uh, loud cries for two others uh, to resign, although they haven't yet, and then a labor leader resigned. And it stems from an audio recording that was leaked from last year in which uh, the four, uh, former uh, council member Murray Martinez, uh, council members, Kevin DeLeon and Gil Sedila and the former labor leader, Ron Hera, were heard making racist and homophobic remarks, the homophobic remarks and the racist remarks being directed. Another city council member, Mike Bonin, uh, who Mike and his husband are the proud parents of a young black uh, kid and uh, They, you know, came under siege at the same time. This has gone beyond the borders of the city of Los Angeles. Even President Biden has weighed in on this, calling for the resignations of De Leon and and Cedillo. Uh, And it also kind of, as we approach the midterms, puts into specific relief just, you know, how, you know, bad, bad can get, especially with, you know, the kinds of things that we are seeing and hearing now. And it's caused, I think, also to take another look hard at, within our own community, um, the, you know, the attack and the siege mentality, particularly in Texas 
uh, Oklahoma, and obviously very much, of course, Florida, um, as trans kids and gay kids and others are being, you know, basically under the gun and under fire by the Republicans. Uh, We saw an instance uh, yesterday at a school board meeting in Maury County, Tennessee, uh, where a group of the so-called Moms for Liberty, a, a basically right-leaning so-called conservative family values group, uh, has been putting pressure on the local library to ban LGBTQ books and books that actually deal with race in a positive light, particularly along the lines of dealing with the issue of slavery in America. The board meeting last night literally erupted in anger. The library director resigned. Uh, and most of it was stirred up over a pride display that uh, the library director had uh, for Pride Month, and it just caused all these people to just lose their minds. Um, I had an email exchange this morning with uh, Equality Florida's Brandon Wolf, and in Florida there is a person suing a school district down there, and it's up today at the Los Angeles Blade, uh, and he's kind of loosely using the don't say gay law as the basis for it. Uh, A computer sciences teacher at his son's middle school in Palm Beach County put up a display of pride flags. And the guy suing say that, you know, it's offensive and that his son doesn't need to be exposed to homosexuality. And, you know, Brandon was fired back with me. It's like, it's just kind of this never ending stuff that goes on with this. Um, you know, and it, the the thing of it is, is that, you know, when we look at these, you know, things and we kind of string them all together, we're starting to see, a, you know, a definitive pattern. And, you know, with less than, I think we're working on 13 or maybe no, I think we're only 12 days after the midterms now. Um, these issues have become extremely important, particularly in areas that are, considered more red-leaning than blue-leaning, and in places where, you know, representation isn't always necessarily a guarantee. Uh, So keeping that in mind, again, I urge, you know, everyone in our community and allied with our community and just in general to please vote because this is going to be an extremely critical uh, time uh, in this particular election. And, you know, we've all watched the news and of course, I report on the news, and we've just seen, you know, the ridiculousness of how it gets from Herschel Walker and some of the nonsense going on in the state of Georgia to Dr. Oz and his battling with John Fetterman in Pennsylvania to Tim Ryan going up against J.D. Vance in Ohio in three very critical Senate seats. So, and then, of course, there's the House races. So, yeah, this is just kind of an over overarching viewpoint of, you know, what I've got on my desk and what I'm looking at, Rob. Yep. Okay. Well, yeah, a crazy world and, um, yeah, not, not, not a little bit scary. I mean, it's, um, you know, pretty, pretty intense. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to switch to our, our guest of honor today. Um, I had the pleasure of going to the book launch, um, just the other night of, uh, Communists in the Closet, Querying the History, 1930s to 1990s. Um, and Bettina both read from the book and answered some questions. Um, so we are, we are in full launch, launch mode. 
And welcome to the show, Bettina. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Um, It came up a little suddenly, but I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm thrilled and um, very excited about the book. Um, I want I want to take you back uh, first, uh, prior to our or prior to your history that comes out in the book. In the book, you start out at a point where um, you come out um, as communist. You're uh, I think you were a, a college age activist and about to take over an organization and came out and got some notoriety there. Um, but you were, your family was very um, entrenched in, in terms of communist philosophy from the get-go. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so I was raised in Brooklyn, New York, and um, my father, Herbert Aptaker, was a very prominent communist theoretician and historian. His field was black history, and uh, that plays an important role in the creation of this book because of so many of the people that I knew growing up, uh, and I talk about that in the book. And uh, my mother also was a communist and was a union organizer. And um, and in my, I was born in '44. So that places me uh, at the end of World War II and how many of the people that came through our home or that we knew uh, were veterans of uh, World War II, if they were men. Uh, Very often they were also survivors, Holocaust survivors. We were a Jewish family. Uh, We were not religious at all, but my parents were um, culturally Jewish and and certainly... um, knew many, many people who were survivors of the Hitler period. So it, it was right. a period in, in my life of uh, very high consciousness of fascism and Nazism and racism and uh, social justice. Yeah, your, um, your father, and you can verify whether it's true or not, but one thing that is said is that a lot of his um, fervor over writing about um, African-Americans um, and their empowerment um, had to do with uh, his anger towards the Jewish people um, in Germany and and allowing themselves to be treated the way they were. Um, is that what what were your thoughts on that? Well, that's not exactly accurate. Um, <clears throat> he was. Um, it's a sort of a little bit of a simplification of a very complicated process, yeah. the, the way you right. say it. Um, he was, um, when he was a teenager, he was about 13 years old, he made a trip to the South with his father and his uncle. And on that trip, he was, for the first time, he had been raised in a fairly well-to-do family in Brooklyn, uh, but on that trip, it was a road trip, he was exposed for the first time to the impoverishment of African-American people in, in the South. And it was, uh, it, he was about 13. And it became uh, a very, uh, he was he was very, it, it had a very huge impact on him. And he, um, I think he determined even that young that he wanted to do something about that. Um, <clears throat> he had this feeling about um 
the injustice of what he was seeing, although his father and his uncle really had no such consciousness. Um, he fought in World War II. He, um, his unit liberated the, the city of Düsseldorf. Uh, he was eyewitness to the um, atrocities. And uh, he came back uh, in 45, 46 with this fierce, um, feeling about both black liberation, anti-racism, and uh, and combating anti-Semitism. And uh, at the same time, he felt, I think this would be accurate to say, that, um, that in his view, this was in his view, the people that really resisted Hitler and saw what he represented and what he was were the communists in Europe and in Germany. And he felt that uh, the, the Jewish community had been, um, especially in Germany, had been uh, so far assimilated that they didn't, that many of them didn't realize the dangers of what was about to happen. And so um, I think that's um, one, one part of it. The other part of it, which is related to your question, is that he, he heralded the resistance of African-American people and he saw it in a much more unified way than might have been historically accurate. But so he contrasted that to the divisions among Jewish people and the, um, what he saw as more more unified resistance of African American people. Um, so that I, it's not so much a displacement. Uh, I think that's a right. A, but but very much I think the two in his mind. You know I can't speak for him. He's been dead quite a long time. But I think in his mind the two. Um, uh, oppressions were allied in terms of anti-Semitism being very related to racism and racism vice versa. And um, he was an ardent supporter of all anti-racist uh, work. Right. Do you, um, just uh, when you were speaking to that, just uh, I segued in my mind, <laughs> um, just wondering what your perspective is on what's happening today in this country. And do you see some of those similar mindsets like your father had observed in Germany, um, seeing so, things that I, were happening? Would, yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, no, go I ahead. Say, of course, I just listened to that report that, that, that um, Brody gave just before the, you know, we started this interview and, you see, um, the, the fascists have always, uh, fascist-like and racist elements have always used um, uh, some, some minority and, 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 and racial hatred uh, in, in, in ways to divide people. <clears throat> and I think very much so also now, contemporaneously, uh, the right wing in this country has used LGBT people as a whipping post, mm -hmm. um, as though everything that's wrong in the world is because we have gay, lesbian, transgender people. It's just a very sim sim simplistic but bombastic and very hateful, very hateful kind of rhetoric. And I wanted to say something else in relationship to this. Look, the, the homophobia has always been present in the society. It says racism is always present in the society. There's nothing new, <coughs> excuse me, about white supremacy. This is as old as the hills. Nor is there anything particularly new about anti-Semitism, which is also as old as the hills. But um, uh, 
someone like Donald Trump, someone like DeSantis, someone like Abbott in Texas, you know what I'm talking about. These mm-hmm. guys who yep. are in power, um, they give license, they give permission for <clears throat> others to express uh, this very hate-filled kind of rhetoric, and they're whipping it up just before the election, I think, in a very, uh, it's vicious, it's very vicious, but it's a way to try to uh, win the election because it's razor thin, and um, and they're desperate for power. And... Um, and, and so they, they make it seem as though they represent a lot more than they do. Uh, these these men are actually part of uh, – the Republicans are a minority in terms of registered voters and in terms of what matters. And um, <clears throat> large numbers of people are independents and, and, and uh, aren't aligned with any party. Um, so it's important to understand uh, – where this is coming from and why it is so intense right now. It's so intense uh, because the election is very, very close. And in most cases, they can't even begin to call it from the polls. And I think it's going to matter how many people turn out to vote. I, I really want to I want to add, you know, second what Brody said, because I think that's what really matters, is people have to come out to vote. We have to vote. Um that determine the outcome of this election, but they're whipping it up in this really vicious way. Absolutely, no. I, 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 every word you said, right, right, right on target. Bettina, um, yeah. I want you to take us back to uh, pivot a little bit here, um, because a lot of us, uh, you know, in the mainstream, um, you know, who've grown up in American society, um, the the word communist has been used and probably abused and twisted and, um, you know, all across the board. What, you know, you grew up in, you know, the more pure philosophical, you know, movement of communism. What exactly did that stand for and does it stand for and does it mean um, that, that people probably don't understand? Well, first let me say um, it is trying to condense a lot of stuff into a, a few <laughs> a few sentences. Right. Um, the people the people in my book, um, communists and closets, who were gay and lesbian, or I say non heterosexuals, and there's a couple of transgender people also, although they didn't have the language for it at the time, um, <clears throat> were were all invested in movements for social justice. Many of them were involved in anti-fascist movements. They were involved especially in anti-racist movements in the United States in very courageous ways, some of them working in the South where it was extremely dangerous in the 1930s and 40s. It was dangerous in the 50s and 60s, and it was even more dangerous earlier. Um, And they were involved in in actions to uh, prevent uh, a third world war, um, um, for nuclear disarmament, uh, various peace activities. So there's a way in which um, that's what my parents were involved in. That's all the people I knew. That's what I did. Um, and I was arrested in Berkeley. You alluded to it, 1964-65, um, co-leading a movement for freedom of speech. It was the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that's just a constitutional right. There's nothing even particularly radical about that except mm-hmm. in the context in which it was being fought for. Um, so um, that, 
that was my experience. And I think as with other, um, uh, and it was anti-capitalist, and it was pro-working class and pro-union. And um, these are the things that uh, those in power, who are still in power, they're just different generation, fear. And they especially fear any kind of unity between Mm -hmm. various peoples who are oppressed and exploited by this system. So uh, I think that's <clears throat> that becomes an important, you know, one of the great lessons we learned uh, in my childhood and in my young adulthood and throughout my life is unity, that the importance of unity between African-American, Chicano, Latinx people, um, uh, Jewish people, in, in a progr- and union people in a progressive direction, and that also includes the LGBT community as much as possible. And that's why the policy of the Communist Party in <clears throat> between 1938 and 1991 is so awful is that it precluded the participation of gays and lesbians and unity with that growing movement in the 70s and 80s. It's just a travesty. And it was rooted in the most um, elementary bigotry, just stupid bigotry. And I documented in the book. Yeah, no, it, I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. And the other night at, at the launch, um, it was discussed as well, which is is surprising because to your point, you know, there's such a, a spirit of wanting to unify in the people who are on the other side and the right are so afraid of unity and so obvious in their own demonization of the LGBTQ community, and so are. I mean, the the transgender kids right now are are exactly what you described as as that group that they're pulling out and going after and using as their their scapegoats. Um, can you go into what? Because you in the book you do talk about very specific things where they are literally shutting down the LGBTQ voice or the, even their fear of the LGBT voice. Um, tell us more about how that went about and, and what their thought process was. What their, uh, well, <clears throat> sorry. Um, uh, it's hard to, let's see, let, let, me, let, me, let me go to Stonewall. Let me go to the Stonewall. Uh, I have a chapter right. in here that's called Stonewalled. Gay liberation and communist silence. <laughs> so it's, right. my, it's my second, it's my second chapter. So Stonewall erupts, and um, you know we herald it today, many many of us, as you know the start of the modern gay liberation movement. At the time, it was ignored by the press, so it wasn't in the New York Times until three days after the uprising had begun. Um, but I found uh, that there was one that I found there was one gay communist whose name was Dale Mitchell, who's this marvelous person, and I was able to interview him, and he lives in Boston, and he's been active his whole life. He was about 20, um, and uh, he was gay, and and uh, he came down to Stonewall the second night. And um, so as... After Stonewall and after the formation of the Gay Liberation Front and then also something called the Gay Activist Alliance, one of the members of the Gay Activist Alliance, the president of it, was a, was a, was a person named um, Manford, 
um, was his was his last name, and um, Morty Morty Manford, and he wrote a letter to the Communist Party. He addressed it to Henry Winston, who was the national chairman of the Communist Party, and he invited the Communist Party to send a speaker to a rally they were having in Washington Square Park trying to get a resolution passed in the New York City Council that would have made it illegal to discriminate in housing, education, employment, and so forth against uh, gays and lesbians. That's how it was formulated at that time. And the Communist Party ignored him. They never answered. They never even answered the letter. But I was in the party files and saw the way it circulated with little notes on it, and nobody answered it, and nobody was willing to even begin to discuss it or respond to it. So here is this, you know, activist seeking support where he thought it ought to be, right? It would make sense that a revolutionary organization would support a civil right. And um, that tells you a lot about Mm-hmm. the refusal of the Communist Party, the leadership of the Communist Party to in any way deal with uh, with gay and lesbian rights, liberation, even to begin to understand it, and casting us as not only degenerates, but then later on as just, as just vicious language, which when you read it, I quote it in the book, I quote what they said, you read it, you think you're reading some right-wing, right-wing press now, that that's how it reads. That's how big it was. Right. And, right. and we couldn't move them. We just you couldn't move them. Um, but at the same time, what my book also documents is the numbers of people in the party uh, who were gay or lesbian. Of course, Harry Hay is among the most prominent. He's from L.A. and I'm right. sure all of your all of your listeners know about Harry. But after he founded the uh, Mattachine Society in 1951, he was he resigned from the party because he knew that it was incompatible, but then they expelled him. So see, that's vicious. And they expelled <laughs> him uh, because they didn't want him to ever have the opportunity to rejoin. And, and, um, and, and a very important thing in his formulation about gay people at the time that he founded the Mattachine Society was that he, he, call, he called us a culturally oppressed minority. So he didn't see it as a not only not as a pathology, but he saw us as a unified force that could form a political consciousness of opposition to uh, to the system, and 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 as part of so that black people are oppressed by race, you see, and 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 he was trying to make a certain alignment there of people understanding that gays, there was nothing wrong with gays or lesbians. We're fine people, he was saying. We're just fine people. There's nothing wrong with us. There's something wrong with a system that that sees us uh, in a way that has to force us into oppression. Right. So well, again, one of the things that, that was just... So, oh, go, go ahead. Go on. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, uh, well, so you can see that that he got a lot of his ideas, Harry got a lot of his ideas from his time in the Communist Party. And it's ironic that at the same time they're expelling him, you know, and um, and he's seeing, he's trying.
trying to develop an understanding of why the suppression of homosexuality is fundamental to the maintenance of capitalism. That's what he's trying to Why do they have to do this? And, um, right. of course, yeah. you've developed theories about it since, you know, in terms of patriarchy and capitalism and racism. But at the time, he was trying to figure that out. Well, one of the things that was fascinating in the discussion the other night was that while the U.S. government and infrastructure and, um, you know, this was also ranked during McCarthyism and everything else, their rationale for um, blacklisting LGBTQ people and demonizing mm-hmm. them is because they were um, uh, susceptible to being blackmailed. And you pointed out in the meeting the other night that the Communist Party had the exact same concern. Yes, it's it's just one of these great historical ironies, and it caused so much suffering, so much pain for people. So the Communist Party decided that it would, and it had already banned us. That was 1938, but then it reinforced the ban in the 1950s on on grounds that. Um, the FBI could blackmail people who were gay or lesbian, you know, and closeted if they found out, and then those people would become informants. And the actual historical record is that of all the people that surfaced as informants in the various uh, Smith Act trials, uh, you know, against communists in the House on American Activities Committee, in the McCarthy Committee, all those people who testified in, 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 in ways to to attack the Communist Party, no one was gay and no one was lesbian, you know. Not in all those people. There was one lesbian who was an informant for the FBI, but she had become a member of the Communist Party as a result of what she was anti-communist. And she was the one that initiated the, the connection to the FBI. One person... And uh, so they just used it. And and the irony, as you're really implying here, as you're pointing out, is that they were using it in exactly the same way, just a mirror image of what the government was saying, that we mustn't have gays and lesbians in the State Department and any kind of government jobs anywhere in the – they they mustn't be employed because the, the, the Soviets will come. And, and get their hooks into them, you know, and force them to become spies. And that also never happened. Yeah, it, I mean, I just want to say, because I want to be historically accurate, there were some gays and, gay men who were spies, and it was, it was a big scandal in England, um, who, were com, who were communists, um, which became sort of, I mean, there were about three of them that became, and that was in the, during World War II. And that right. became a sort of whipping post, you know. But um, that's what. So they they use that is what I'm. I just want to be, you know. I want I want people to understand, you know, to be very historically accurate. There were a couple of instances like that, but it, of course it had nothing to do with the actual repression uh, that people experienced. Right. Uh, one thing I, that I wonder about uh, from your book is, uh, okay, I get the 1950s because I mean the whole of the culture was completely anti-gay and the ignorance was just rampant I mean the the 1950s is when they had films come out about how gay men all gay men were pedophiles and 
you know, yeah. watch your children around gay people and all that sort of nonsense. Um, but, you know, through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s with the AIDS crisis and the galvanization of um, a lot of the LGBTQ movement, why did it take the Communist Party so long to relinquish that ban? Because 1991 seems very late in the game to finally... It's very late. It's, it's appallingly late in the game. And I just want to add something else about that. It's even later. It's really not until 2005 at a party convention that there's a strong resolution in support of gay and lesbian and transgender human rights. And very recently, just like a few months ago, there was a big uh, Communist Party statement about transgender rights, um, which, which was very good. But, I mean, so you have to look at, it's just, it's very hard I, I cannot get exactly into the minds or the heads of the people in the leadership of the Communist Party in terms of their uh, bigotry as regards LGBT people. It's um, I, I can make some conjecture, conjectures. One of them is that the general secretary of the Communist Party for all the years I was around it or knew it was Gus Hall. He, he, um, he was a steel worker. And he was of Finnish heritage, uh, grew up in the Midwest, was a steel worker, and one of the organizers of the Steel Workers Union. And um, I read a book by uh, a woman named Anne Belay uh, a number of years ago. It's an excellent book. I think it's called Steel Closets. I quote it in my book if anyone's interested. It's a really good book where she did interviews with people who were working in steel, who were um, gay or lesbian. And the level of homophobia in that steel industry, it's it's appalling. It's just appalling. It's like what she called, and what what you would call sort of hyper-masculinity. And Mm -hmm. um, it actually puts people's lives in danger. There's also a lot of sexism. There's terrible sexism and terrible racism. So it's sort of like this this, this com- coalescing of those um, um, forms of bigotry. But Gus Hall was a steel worker, and if he was working in that environment uh, as a steel worker, it would make sense to me, that's one thing that I'm conjecturing because I don't know, but it would make sense to me that he would have absorbed and internalized this uh, horrific uh, attitude toward gay and lesbian people. And um, he, he never lost it. He, he, was, he was also a womanizer. He was very sexist. He was very sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was the general secretary. So it casts a certain kind of, of aura over the party leadership. But there were other people in the party leadership also who were very, very homophobic. Um, and... Um, and the other thing I want to say is, and it's in the book, and I quote it again, you know, very carefully documented, um, there were people who challenged this policy, uh, rank-and-file members of the Communist Party, and they would write letters to the, to the leadership. And, and at one point um, in the 1970s, the, the um, magazine called Gay Insurgent, which I think was published out of Philadelphia, reprinted a chapter, part of a chapter, it was chapter 10, 
from a book by a psych- psychologist um, in Germany, and it, it was East Germany, so it was the socialist part of Germany at that time, where he said that homosexuality was really not a big deal, that about always there's always a percentage of the population that's, uh, that, that's homosexual, that it's, um, uh, and that it's, uh, it's healthy, uh, they can people form healthy relationships, and there was really no no need for the um, outlawing it and so forth. And that the chapter was translated into English, and people sent copies of that chapter to the national office of the Communist Party, asking them to read it and to change their policy. <laughs> this is you know from a socialist country. It didn't budge anybody. They didn't even answer the letters. So you have to. Wonder, you know, I think you know, I don't. I I can't, you know I think I you bring up a really. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point though. That I, I think we don't, um, especially those of us who are, are gay and lesbian, don't consider because we're in our skin that there are still people, no matter what their philosophy is, no matter where they come from politically or philosophically, is they have the ick factor about us that that we just are icky to them, and you know yeah. it's. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that that's a huge point. I'm, I want to pivot a little bit because you talk about so many fascinating people in the book. Um, let me ask you, who who of the people that you wrote about, um, you know, somebody had to read just one of the people that you, you characterize and, and tribute in the book, who should they, who are the pullouts? Well, the, the person besides Harry Hay that I've already mentioned, yes, I have I have um, essentially five or six chapters in which I um, talk. I, I give you biographies, long biographies of people, um, and then in an earlier section of the book, I give shorter biographies of people. Mm-hmm. So uh, among the shorter biographies, someone might want to read about David Graham Du Bois. Um, he was the son of Shirley Graham, who was a prominent prominent member of the black radical tradition in this country, playwright, composer, uh, activist, communist. And she married in 1951, she married uh, really the dean of African-American scholarship and political activity, which uh, revolutionary activity, which was W.E.B. Du Bois. And, um, and her son, David, um, sort of choreographed their wedding. <laughs> and, um, and then he took Du Bois's name as his own after they were after his mom and Dr. Du Bois were married, and uh, he lived most of his life in Cairo. After that, he came back periodically to the United States for a period of time. He edited the Black Panther newspaper in Oakland. He was a journalist. He was a he was a very fine journalist who worked in Cairo. But he came back to the U.S. and to Oakland in in 1973 because. So many of the leaders of the Black Panther Party had been incarcerated, and um, uh, he's he's a marvelous marvelous figure. It's a short biography. I'm calling it out to you. I knew him. I loved him, um, and it was very startling to me in the late 1980s when he told me that he was gay. I didn't know that, and he came out hmm. to me, and um, he was a gay man. So that that. 
his story is beautiful. And the other person I would pull out, I mean, there's a lot of different people here, but um, I think that Lorraine Hansberry is an extraordinary figure. Mm-hmm. And I write a very long, that's, that's one of the longer chapters about her. Um, for those of you that don't know the name, you'll probably recognize the play that she wrote, which is very famous, which is called A Raisin in the Sun. Tens of thousands of people have read that play or performed in it as in high schools, you know. It, 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 right. It's a very iconic uh, play. So they may not remember her name, but they remember the play. So her name was Lorraine Hansberry, and uh, she was a communist. She joined the Communist Party in 1948. She she drifted away from it in about 57, which a lot of people did, but it didn't change anything about her politics. She was a revolutionary. And, um, and she was mentored by an extraordinary group of black inte- intellectuals writers and artists in Harlem uh, in the 1950s who were centered around a news journal that was called Freedom. It was published by Paul Robeson, who again, many people will remember the name of Paul Robeson as a great singer and actor. Um, And he he published it, and the the, uh, news journal was edited by a man a very brilliant man named Louis Burnham, Louis Burnham. And that's where she was mentored and um, nurtured, and she was an assistant editor, and she wrote many, many, many articles for the freedom. She also wrote poetry. Um, and so a lot of – there's been good stuff written about Lorraine Hansberry, especially recently, uh, very good books about her. But this role of the black communist intelligentsia tends to be muted. There's a kind of muting of how important the black communist intellectual and artists and writers were to her. Another very good friend of hers was Alice Childress, who was another communist and black playwright. Uh, The great painter Charles White was very important to her. Elizabeth Catlett, another great African-American painter who spent most of her life in Mexico, was very important to her. So it's not incidental. The communist affiliation is not only not incidental, it shapes her. And it shapes her understanding of racism, of international solidarity. And the other point about this is Lorraine Hansberry was a lesbian and struggled with it. She struggled with all the internalized homophobia. She wrote for the latter, which was the publication of Daughters of Belitis, under a pseudonym, and she also wrote for One, which was the the magazine that came out of the Mattachine um, that was published in L.A. And um, I I go into some detail about her her essays in there. And um, there's beautiful stories about what happened as she came out. (laughs) Uh, she She was married. And she told her husband that she was a lesbian. I mean, she didn't hide it from Bob Nemiroff. She really loved her. She understood, you know. And she describes herself in a in a, a letter to the to the latter, to the daughters of Belitis, the latter. She describes herself as a, um, a heterosexually married lesbian. And I say in the book that it's not a usual solution. You know, I was for many years. I was, right. I knew I was. You know, it, so and people did different things. But anyway, that 
she she was very honest with her husband Nemiroff, and 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 I think he was really quite remarkable in not only staying with her but protecting her. And they were like best friends. Right. He was like the best. Excellent. Friend no, that. So know? at the and, top of the uh, show, I. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and then there's wonderful stories about her in the village, in Greenwich Village, with her with her lesbian friends, um, fooling around and laughing and playing. And uh, as one woman said, she took off her intellectual hat and just and just played with us and danced in the snow. And there's beautiful images of her like that, which again, in much of the literature that's been written about her, there's again there's a kind of muting of the significance of uh, her lesbian identity. I, so at the top of the show, I, I, my opinion of your book is, is that it is a vitally important work. I mean, it is important that it is chronicled. It's important that it is there for people to see that these stories are no longer hidden. And this is a, a very um, in-depth look of, of a certain aspect of the whole LGBTQ history and the different yeah parties that that took part in it um so that's my opinion what drove you to write this why why were you compelled to put this down oh thank you so much <laughs> well um you know uh let's see it's my eighth book and um uh in the the last major work that i published uh in 2016 was a memoir and uh, it's called Intimate Politics. And mm-hmm. in the memoir, it's very open about being a lesbian and, and so on. And um, um, and my experiences in the party um, and the kind of homophobia I was met with. But mostly, so I did that. But as a result of it, I had a, um, I'm sorry, the book was published in 2006. I said the wrong date. And the uh, after the book was published, I, I had a, um, 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 a message, I think it was an email actually, from Aaron Lechleiter. I think many of your folks, will, many of us folks know, know Aaron. He just published a book called Love's Next Meeting. He's a cultural historian. He teaches at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And Love's Next Meeting is a history, uh, a cultural history of uh, LGBT folks in in the cultural left, so it's not only the Communist Party, but, you know, like the Socialist Workers' Party, the Socialist Party, various formations of, of, um, of, of political activism, and their cultural productions, you know, like the art and the music and, and, and so on. Um, and um, he was giving a paper, he was giving a panel at the American Studies Association, and he asked me if I would be on the panel. And this was in 2006, seven, 2006. He asked me to be on the panel. And um, I agreed because uh, I knew what he was after and I knew why he asked me because he had seen the memoir. And then I realized that uh, I didn't have time to do any kind of real research. And I was sort of in a panic about it. And I asked my, my partner, now wife, Kate Miller, I asked Kate, I said, what should I do? And she said, use your own life as the archive. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And I published a paper from that conference that was called Keeping the Communist Party Straight. 
1947 to 2000 and whatever I said. So um, uh, I, I pumped from the. I said I dated it from 47 to about the 1970s. But that so that paper was published, and then I started to get responses from it, and um, and I was teaching at NYU. And I was I did a panel on um, I, I gave a presentation that I thought was going to be a seminar based on this paper that I had written, and um, huge numbers of people came, and they were all LGBT people mostly. I don't think everybody was, but most people were, and they'd all been around the communist left or the socialist workers or something. You know, they were all, and right. they were and they were um, so engaged. And then uh, they started arguing with each other. You know, there was a Q&A. And I just stood there on the podium, and I was taking notes from what everybody else was saying. I was, like, irrelevant. You know, I was just like a recorder. Uh, but it was marvelous. And then afterwards, people came up to me and said, this isn't just an article. You have a book. You have to write this book. And that, that's how it started, was, was right. from this wonderful response. And I realized that I could... It, it was impossible that I could be the only communist, you know, gay communist. I mean, that was not possible. Uh, just just by the law of statistics, I knew that. And I started to do the research. And it the, the archival work took me 10 years because uh, people were very buried. They were buried as communists also. Remember that, you know, because Mm-hmm. In the 50s, and it wasn't easy to be a, an open communist, and most people weren't. And then they were completely closeted as gays or lesbians. So uh, I had to, uh, you know, go through a lot of files, went to a lot of different archives all over the country, and eventually pieced this together, and then um, found there were a lot of people. And then I had the problem of how to organize this book and whose stories I could tell at this point. Um and I just think it's a very vital part of the history of the left and the history of the Communist Party and the history of the LGBT people, our history as a people. And and so one of the things I hope this book accomplishes is bringing, us, bringing those two things together so that um, especially to try to move the, the continuing sort of undercurrent of indifference now, I would say, on the mm-hmm. part of straight people who are in the left, they're 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 not hostile anymore so much as indifferent, and I would really like them to be not indifferent but avidly engaged. Absolutely, and what because um, I thought it was interesting the other night there were a couple of young people um, young people obviously in the LGBTQ community themselves asking questions. And it, it just made me reflect not on their questions in particular, but what um, younger people who have been growing up, you know, pretty much since marriage equality passed and since a lot of milestones were hit that see the world in a certain way, what, what do you hope that they get from this historical perspective of, of a time when things were much harder than they could even imagine? Thank you. That's a great question. And what I hope they really understand is that they're standing on the shoulders of the men and women, both communist and non-communist, but the LGBT people who stood up and fought for their rights as human beings, for human rights as, as, as people, and made inc- 
incalculable sacrifices um, to uh, to bring about the kind of rights that we are enjoying now. As someone who grew up in the 50s, it was unimaginable to me that I would live long enough to actually marry this woman that I've been with for more than 40 years. You know, mm-hmm. Even from, for me, even coming out when I came out in the late 70s, and I was late, you know, I was late coming out in terms of a lot of LGBT people because I was so fearful and because I'd been so so um, brutalized as a communist. But, but um, uh, it, it was, you know, to understand the sacrifices that people made, uh, including their lives, you know. Pete, Harvey Milk was murdered. And, and um, it's just a tremendous story. And then, of course, in the AIDS crisis, the, 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 the community came together, I think, in extraordinary ways and did amazing things. And the ACT UP is the first movement ever in the history of this country to call for um, a medical, that the medical care is a human right. Universal medical right. care is a human right. That's, that's where it originated. It originated yep. among gay and lesbians in that movement. And it's, it's, a, it's a history that I, that I hope is a benefit to the younger generation to understand where we come from. Absolutely. Bettina, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being you. Thank you for this work. Um, and thank you for joining us today. Um, absolute thank pleasure. You. And um, I'm very excited about this. Folks, go get this book. It's Communists in Closets, Querying the History 1930s to the 1990s. Um, Bettina, I'm sure they can get it on Amazon or bookstores. Is that is it readily yeah, available? You can, get it on, you can get it on Amazon, Goodreads, all of those sites. And you can also go directly to the publisher's website, which is Rutledge. Rutledge is the publisher. And you can go to their website. You can get it there, too. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank Brody Levesque, the producer of the show and the publisher of the Los Angeles Blade. You can find his work on losangelesblade.com. You can also find articles by me on that same site. Um, my most recent one was a tribute to um, the late Leslie Jordan. And um, we should mention, you know, in memorandum of, of, of Leslie and um, his wonderful personality and his contribution to our culture. Um, but anyway, you can find the article there. Um, again, it's a tribute to him um, on how important he really was. To everything we did. Um, and uh, for uh, Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week. I'm going to have a sensational show for you, I promise, and we look forward to talking to you again then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio!